Today's episode is sponsored by The School Project. A few months ago, a friend of the podcast, Laura Bowers, who you may know from things such as episode two of this podcast and from possibly her most famous role as randomly running into her at the Whole Foods by my work, approached me with a pretty cool project idea. Laura, at the time, was working on a master's degree in social work, and for her final project, she wanted to record a podcast to discuss the role of improv applied to social work, be it in clinical therapy, the classroom, uh, and many other applications. Uh, And so as many of you know, for the past year, I've been running medical improv workshops with first and second year med students where I use improv exercises to teach various communication, cognition, and teamwork skills to them. So in this episode, we do something a little different as Laura interviews me about all the work that I've done in that field. Um, After she submitted the assignment, uh, Laura told me that she got an A++ on it. You heard that right. Those were two pluses. And they hope to actually incorporate improv into their training in the near future, which I think is pretty exciting news. Um, Hopefully, through this episode, you gain a better insight into improv's application in the medical context and the potential that sort of work has in other realms. Uh, And if you want to learn more, you can check out medicalimprov.org. And you can also reach out to me if you want to learn more. Um, I'd love to uh, talk your ear off uh, and tell you everything there is to know about medical improv. Um, And lastly, come watch me perform Um, every Friday at 8 at the Comedy Clubhouse uh, in Chicago. I perform with my improv team, Lucky Lucky, uh, and I would love to see you come out. Um, Other than that, let's get to the episode. Today's episode was recorded on April 15th, 2019. Welcome to Mr. Rotor's Neighborhood. Today I'm sitting down with Sharag Rator, who is a comedic improviser, um, among many other things, and is now working to apply the magic and the technique and force of improv to other fields. So I really wanted to sit down with him today to talk about how the techniques, the theory, and kind of the spirit of improv can be applied to the field of social work, specifically clinical therapy, possibly even the classroom and and some other things. So welcome, Sharag. Hello, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Laura. And Sharag and I go back a few years now? Um, yeah, probably like four years. Yeah, four years. And we met through an improv team that we both got assigned to. And the improv team had kind of a short run, I'd say. Um, yeah, like, <laughs> a, like a shooting star. It was... Oh, I like that. It was bright and short and beautiful Definitely. and then ended... But it was, a, it was a good experience. I think that was the most, when I think about all the different teams that I've been on and the makeup of each of those teams, it was the most spiritually diverse 
improv team I've ever been on. Oh, yeah. We had a lot of, so it was interesting to see how improv kind of helped us all find common topics to meet up on on stage, even though we didn't necessarily know about all of each other's backgrounds and experiences. Oh, that's interesting. I never really even thought of it that way. But yeah, you're right. It was a, it was a, a wildly diverse team. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been on one quite as diverse since then. But I think the reason my brain is going in that direction is just this idea of how improv can also kind of unite with the spirit of queer theory and bringing, you know, you don't necessarily have to know exactly how someone defines themselves or what experiences they're walking into a room with, whether that's on stage with you as a performer or in the therapeutic setting, but that you can kind of use those improv techniques to meet on common ground and find a truth together or a different path. Cool. But so I wanted to, before we get into some of the ways that I'm trying to think about applying queer theory and social work together in an improv environment, I wanted to hear a little bit about your experience. You are currently um, leading workshops and then continuing to design a model for teaching improv to medical students. Uh, Yeah. So I've been um, uh, following this concept known as medical improv. So it was started by... Um, Katie Watson, who is this phenomenal woman um, out of Northwestern University. So she's a a lawyer um, and she's also an improviser and she's been improvising for a long time. And so she started this concept known as medical improv, which uh, takes the uh, techniques and trainings of improv and connects it to medicine to improve health practitioners, communication, uh, teamwork and like cognition skills. So. Yeah, it's really, really interesting because um, it, it, uh, I think it was pretty clear that like um, improv has a lot of applications in other realms because mm-hmm. organizations, I've, I don't know how long, but organizations have been having improvisers come and train people and do exercises mm-hmm. with people, teamwork exercises with people. Um, and so she just decided to focus it in on uh, medical students. And I don't fully know her reason why, but I think a lot of it was they're uh it's a it's a position or profession that is very interpersonal but mm. that's mm. not focused uh at all in school exactly like zero so like I, i'm a pharmacist um and in pharmacy school we at least this was maybe i i don't think my experience was unique but like there was very little uh communication type courses it was mm-hmm. really focused on learning which is very important obviously because you can't yeah. have medical professionals or any professional that don't know their stuff but uh i think like if you don't know how to communicate that's information that you know then then the information you know i think is loses its value exactly exactly that was one of the big reasons so to give a little bit of context to this conversation i reached out to the director of the comedy club that we both met through um and was asking him about like who i should sit down and talk about this with someone who you know isn't just a comedic performer but is thinking about how applicable the improv techniques are to other fields and he recommended you right away and i'd already been thinking of you but specifically your experience in designing these workshops or just thinking like okay this is a game or a technique or like a way to perform a scene how can i stretch that or manipulate it to help these medical school students think about things really and we're always talking about the medical model in social work school because a lot Social work is interesting. It's kind of a field that exists in the in-between or at the intersection. It's not just like psychology where you're working with the mind. You know, someone's coming into your setting and you're kind of diagnosing or pathologizing the way that their thinking patterns are. Social work is stepping back and saying, okay, there might be some things going on with mental health or 
um, certain thinking patterns, but also like what's going on economically, what's going on like with all these different intersections of oppression, all these wider things that put a person in its context. Yeah. And so when you get trapped in that like traditional medical model, yeah, you tend to pathologize the client or only see kind of like what's wrong or your symptoms rather than seeing like through a social work lens, how, what are their strengths? Like we call it the strengths based perspective. Okay. And so I think that's like a really beautiful tool to give medical school students or doctors because you need to be, you know, you might have all that medical knowledge memorized, but that creativity to be able to not only like engage with clients differently or having some of those interpersonal skills, but also picking up on things that not all patients know how to communicate yeah or just based on their background might communicate differently like you're breaking out of that a little bit with those improv techniques yeah i agree and and i think like yeah as we've already kind of said a few times it's like i feel like these are skills that like everyone needs to know and i just happen to be focused on doctors Mm -hmm. because that was my best opportunity to get this like rolling and then ultimately whoever i want to teach different people and and um yeah so uh it is a an interesting way to teach people like communication skills. Yes. I think. Yeah, for sure. And when I first started thinking about this project specifically, although I had been thinking about different ways to apply improv to social work or teaching when I used to be an elementary school teacher, but the thing that I guess kind of sparked my thinking about this was this idea of like, technically with improv, you should be able to walk out on the stage and meet any person even if you haven't rehearsed with them before and create something that's like truthful, honest, and hopefully funny. Although yeah. that doesn't always happen. Yeah. I think uh, it's funny. You and I had a scene that I remember from like our training at the comedy club where uh, our director ended up crying because it was you and I, we were playing parents waiting in a hospital waiting room or an emergency waiting room yeah. for our kid who had been injured. And it, it wasn't necessarily a funny scene, although I think there were points of like tension that we built up so strongly and then we broke with the small joke, but that joke seemed bigger because of the tension. Mm-hmm. But it was just trying to like be emotionally honest in that scene. Yeah. That, uh, I remember that scene distinctly. That was one, what really one of the first times I'd done like uh, an, an intense scene that um, really tapped into a, a, an emotional place that I didn't know mm-hmm. I had. And I think that that's like also why I do this stuff as well. It's like um, in pharmacy school, like not that people told us not to express our emotions, but it's like schooling is so like go to class learn the stuff take the test Mm -hmm. go to class learn the stuff take the test and then you have your friends and all that stuff but like if you can infuse sort of that feeling of those feelings of like vulnerability a little bit and let these students feel something a little different or like let their brain like feel something a little different Mm -hmm. even like let them feel loose like in these workshops that i've been teaching and i can go over like if you want me to explain like the type of stuff we do in these workshops but like uh like sometimes the students i feel like think that they're in like a playground so they'll just like let loose and like one student climbed a table as we were doing this one exercise where you walk around and embody different characters and in my head i was like i wonder if they don't have other opportunities to really like um explore and be free and so you're in this like improv is kind of this yes playground for adults that's one of the biggest reasons why when people are like why do you do improv if they're not familiar with it i'm like it's the only time you get to play yeah or like do that kind of imagination play as an adult yeah but that scene that i just mentioned that you and i did that was one of the things that kind of got me thinking 
you and I, you know, we didn't really know each other. We walked out and we, we met in this emotional place together and then followed that thread. And so in a therapeutic setting, you have a new client or a client that you're getting to know. You, you know, walk into a room together, you sit down and all of a sudden you're expected to not only kind of like meet with them emotionally, get to understand their reality or the scene that they're setting, which is their life and their experience, but then follow that through with them in a way that's not judgmental. Like you, you might not, one of the, I'm trying to think specifically about how, and this conversation is meant not really to be like, what would, you know, doing social or, or doing improv in therapy look like, but just trying to be like, okay, what are some of the techniques or the ideas that I can start thinking about or start manipulating to work in a therapeutic setting. Cool. And one of the big ones right off the bat is you don't have to necessarily agree emotionally to an idea that a performer presents on stage in improv, but you have to agree to that reality. Yeah. And that right there is a huge thing we talk about in social works all the time that you have to meet the client where they're at. You have to, you know, you might disagree with the way they're handling something. Yeah. You might have other thoughts, but that's their reality. That's the situation. And you are not going to be of service to them if you're coming in with these predetermined judgments or like you have to follow X, Y, and Z path to, you know, sort out your situation. So you're not supposed to like deny their emotions. You're supposed to let their emotions be their emotions. And then how do you address that? Is Absolutely. That interesting. Yeah. Or even the way they're handling something, they're the expert on their situation. But your your goal or one of the many goals you might have as a therapist or a social worker is to say, okay, this is your reality. This is how it feels in your reality. How can we maybe, you know, A, sort out the issues that are causing that. But if it's more of like a mental health issue or more of an emotional situation, like how can we work together to change your, th- your thought patterns huh. or the way you think or how, when you have these emotions or these thoughts, how can you you know, sit with them in a way that allows you to choose how you respond based on your values and your goals and what you want for yourself rather than like panic or anxiety or depression. So that's just like one of those key improv rules or techniques that I was like, oh, this is so applicable to social work. That's super interesting. Yeah. I didn't even, that's never really crossed my mind like that, but yeah, you're right. Like you aren't, yeah, you're not denying their emotion or you might not agree with their emotion, but you can't deny their emotion. It is that is what is there. Mm-hmm. So how do you now like interplay within that? And I think especially pe- a lot of people who might want to go into therapy or social work, they might be like problem solvers or fixers, which, you know, that's a beautiful spirit to have. Yeah. But that can be really dangerous when you're going and be like, I'm the expert, especially if you're working in a community that's not your own community or with all the different ways that like power and privilege come into the room with you as a therapist. Sure. That you have to be really careful to not, like dictate what that looks like but instead kind of see like where they're at and what they want out of that yeah but i think it might be helpful then so you can kind of see how i'm like i'm just in the beginning phases of thinking about these things yeah like you want to yeah you're trying to figure out how to apply it to that yeah so maybe hearing a little bit about how you are introducing this in like that medical environment yeah yeah we can go from there yeah of course so so the idea behind um medical improv um uh uh, and so I'm also kind of in the beginning of it. So I've done four workshops now over the last few months mm-hmm. um, and kind of borrowing from uh, Katie Watson's model of how sh- uh, she teaches it. She teaches it over the course of a five week, like oh, two cool. hours per week selective. And that's ultimately what I wow. want to do as well. But so in these workshops, um, basically what it is, is the exercises that we do are 
improv exercises. Okay. They're nothing different from what you would experience in uh, an improv, a regular improv class. Now, my okay. workshop is two hours, so it, it has about five exercises. All those exercises are, imp- are exercises I probably have done in an improv class already. Okay. In the past. Um, where the difference comes and where the switch comes in like uh, going from just being an improv class to being a medical improv course mm-hmm. is that after each exercise, you have a discussion about how the skills in that exercise connect to their medical practice. I love that. Okay. And so what I think that that opens up room for is that that discussion can be done by any profession at all. Okay, so this is beautiful because already it's tying in like the spirit of social work and also the spirit of queer theory, this idea that like the person or the community is going to define like who they are, how they show up in a room, what, you know, what they want for themselves, all those things. I love the idea that you are coming into that space or that workshop as the, the leader with like, I have these resources or these techniques and I can share them with you, but then you as a community of professionals are like talking about how that makes sense for you mm-hmm. and, you know, the work that you do. Yeah. And in, like, obviously with those exercises, I kind of have a, pre- I, I have to come in, I think with some preconceived ideas yeah. of like, there's a reason I'm doing these specific exercises mm-hmm. or like trying to, um, like someone told me when I was asking some people how to build a workshop, they were like, go in there trying to figure out what your focus is on. So for example, if you want to focus a workshop on communication mm-hmm. and the importance of communication, like what exercises would you do as opposed to a focus of teamwork and what exercises would you do? Because those, they might be the yes. same, but there's also like, there they could be different. Some exercises that focus, some exercises don't really focus on teamwork. Mm-hmm. Some exercise, So it's, uh, so knowing that I have this kind of general idea of what I wanted to focus on. So my goal with these workshops is like, how can we, focus in on the idea of the importance of communication um mm. just i have two hours i don't have a long class thing yeah. and i just don't think i think uh communication is a skill that many of us everyone needs improvement on because mm-hmm. i think better communication leads to just better interpersonal relationships yes. and all that stuff right so um so the exercises i do are sort of like uh yeah um we do the exercises and then open that space up to let them talk and i will try to direct it a little bit and i'm working on trying to be better at not telling them what they should have experienced because mm-hmm. if they didn't experience it then they didn't experience it i can't tell them what they should have felt yeah. too much at least i'll try to guide them but mostly my goal is to just let them kind of roll and navigate the um the the discussion that's a good point i think especially when you're like thinking about how to design a workshop or like an educational seminar or whatever it is that's really hard to like you know you want someone to walk away with x y and z yeah but that might not always be how it works yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want an example of an exercise that we do? That did? is exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah, sure. Um, so we do a few, but um, there's this one called Rip Van Winkle. Have you heard of this exercise? Yes, but I don't remember it. Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a two-person conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, one person is from the present, and the other person is uh, has just woken up having been asleep since 1776. Okay. And the person from the present has to explain a bit of modern society to the time traveler. We call, the person who's been sleeping, we call them the Rip Van Winkle. Mm. Um, they have to explain a bit of modern society to that person in terms that they'll understand. So I give them like, uh, so wow. if you and I are doing this, right? So if I'm the to- if I'm the person from the present and you're the person from 1776, um, I give the students modern stuff. So like a uh, microwave, television, mm-hmm. cell phone. And then you have two minutes, two to three minutes to try and describe to you what a cell phone is. And your, um, as the Rip Van Winkle, your responsibility is to help 
the person from the present know what you don't understand about my explanation so like asking clarifying questions having me go further into it yes. to like if i say a word you've never heard of then it, you'd be like well i don't know what that means what does like electricity mean explain mm -hmm. that to me um and so we do that exercise and i give all these students all these different things to um, talk about we reconvene at uh, after about three minutes and i ask the rip van winkles what they understood about um the bit of modern society mm -hmm. uh, and so the idea behind this exercise and what i try to talk about with them is like so you all have never spoken to anyone from 1776 you know nothing about their life mm -hmm. but you just did a whole two-minute conversation and loosely or roughly explained to them something like um like uh airplanes like one kid described an airplane as a horse on wings or something <sighs> like that right um but i was like you never met anyone from 1776 and here you all here you are yeah. you just explained something to them when we get into our practice we're going to always be speaking to people that don't yes. have the same background as us. So, like, what did you do that worked or how did you connect with this person? Mm -hmm. So then I'll let them tell me, like, what, what were the techniques they used to connect with this person? It's yes. like I asked them, like, for, like, I think for, like, airplanes, all students will be like, so how do you get around now? And then they use that. So I think the person said horse. And so like, all right, cool. So this is like a horse, but yes. it flies in the air, whatever it is, right? So it's like um, asking them how they um, connected with this person who they know nothing about. Mm -hmm. uh, and then asking. Um, so that's the like um, the person from the present side. From the Rip Van Winkle side, the focus is uh, about like um, uh, asking clarifying questions and the importance yes. of that. Um, but yeah, trying to connect. It's just like in when you get in practice, you're not going to be speaking to you should assume that the person you're speaking mm -hmm. to is not a doctor yes, or whatever has the same understanding as you, even if that's like more or less than you, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you're not going to be, you're going to not be, you're not going to, there's going to be a knowledge deficit one way or the other. Yes. But how do we still talk to this person? How do we tell them important information that they need to know about their condition or any of that stuff? This is beautiful. That I love that. I love that. That's a thousand percent applicable to social work, to the classroom teachers, like trying to understand different learning styles, all of that. And specifically within the realm of queer theory or thinking about these things, um, I'm thinking specifically about working with LGBTQIA populations and kind of something that I've been struggling with myself um, and thinking about therapy and how to show up in the room as a therapist is this idea of even within this like LGBTQIA umbrella, like queer people to other queer people we might not all use the same labels or one label for me might mean something different for someone else based on their experience or or even like the era they've grown up you know any different factor that can change that for them and that i guess i've been struggling with how can therapists talk more about like humanizing subjects in in the therapy session so like relationships connections without using these specific labels or these binaries, these categories to convey those stories because huh. even, I mean, you, you you talk with different queer folks who might have started with one label and now they're at another point in their, their life where they have, you know, more experience, more knowledge or just more self-knowledge and now they want to have another label. But it we're so forced into these categories that I think even when you're trying to be supportive or, you know, using things that you think that client might use, like how can we just get away from that that language altogether that would narrow someone's story down but that's really hard to do or to train ourselves to use different language or to just to come at the situation without the assumption of anything and it's hard i, I feel like with uh 
yeah and I, so I don't know what like being a doctor is like but being a pharmacist i mean you're trained in this like language and you mm-hmm. you like you surround yourself with people that uh, have the same knowledge as you and like the same level of understanding as you and whatever and then you speak to people who don't and then you forget that like not everyone understands yeah. the same stuff you do or lives the same life you do and i mean i think that that like without getting too broad it's I think like how do you get out of your own bubble like the yes. bubble that you've created which is hard to get out of it's like you have to think outside like there was a there was this um uh, at work once we so I do prior authorization pharmacy which is a uh, um we determine the coverage of medications for Medicaid patients in the state okay. of Illinois so basically I decide like if a patient can get the medication um at a reduced insurance price or they have to pay full price for it or the doctor has to give us more information Mm. why um and so there was this so there's i don't know really the law specifically but um for truck drivers there's some uh law-ish type thing where like they're not really supposed to be uh taking insulin if they're driving trucks because it can if you take too much it can drop your blood sugars pretty low so insulin's used for diabetes yeah um and like people, if you have type one, you're just on insulin because your pancreas doesn't work. Yeah. And if you have type two, then if it progresses, then you might get put on insulin. So there's some, I don't know the specifics, but like we've been told before, like we'll get requests. I'll be like, this person can't be on insulin because they're a truck driver. So anyways, mm. um, one of my coworkers, um, we were this a doctor's office called and said, this person needs to be on four oral drugs. We can't put them on insulin because they're a truck driver. And so she was like, doesn't he care about his diabetes? And like, shouldn't he care about that? Mm. And then trying to fall within our rules. And we were like, yeah, but he needs to work, son. Like there's yes. things that, and it's, and I don't think she was being, she was trying to follow what the guidelines say, which is like after three oral agents, it's time to look at insulin. But there's mm-hmm. also this reality of like, that does, that shit doesn't matter if you don't have money, then like yes. having good diabetes or having good control is irrelevant if you can't get a job. And there's obviously yes. issues of like, if your diabetes is uncontrolled, you might not be able to work and all that stuff. But it's like. I don't know if that's the best example, but that's actually for social work specifically the most perfect example because again, like social work being at this intersection of all these different things, like mm. yeah, health is a really big important concern, but then so are your economic needs, and so are like short-term immediate needs. So you, as a therapist or a social worker or doctor, might be being like long-term. This is going to ha- cause a lot of issues. Yeah, but then like the short-term needs, you know, you can't even think about long-term. Yeah. until you get those met so that's exactly that like really difficult kind of catch-22 situation you're often walking into as a social worker and trying to be like all right i have a million thoughts in my head about what the consequences might be or what might be my idea of the best solution yeah. but that person is the expert and that they're they should set the agenda like you can give them tools or resources or help kind of looking at the situation from different angles yeah but ultimately you know your job is to support them and what they want i feel like that's happening in medicine a little bit like we were told a lot in school like uh what is it called i think i don't know i think the term is patient-centered medicine but basically mm-hmm. the idea mm-hmm. is like uh let the patient have some control because it was this uh old time medicine used to be I guess stereotypically like this paternalistic idea of like I'm the professional I'm the doctor I'm gonna tell you what you need to take right it's a shift in like you get to control it we're obviously still gonna give you your medication we are still the knowledge experts but like let's find a way that this will better work for you and maybe Mm. compliance or listening will go up more if they have the power um it sort of sounds like yours I mean I think with social work it's probably a lot more uh 
I feel like it's probably a little different in that, like, the the patient is the one that's supposed to have their own discoveries and changes, or is that correct? Enough? Yeah, I think depending on the type of therapy someone's uh. seeking, for sure. But then you might also be, like, a case manager, and you're dealing with uh, a client, but then also their children. So now you, like, have these different responsibilities uh. to the different family members. So, like, that I think that's perfectly relevant, mm. especially the idea of, like, you can present someone with a resource but if it's not going to be one that they use yeah like social workers are always you know having to give referrals but if you're not thinking about like is this referral something they're even going to follow up with or like is there are the factors in their life going to prevent that referral from even happening yeah like you know something as simple as like is it going to take two hours on a bus with their kids to get to this next service provider yeah. like then it's probably not a smart referral to give them. Yeah, like even on paper it would make mm-hmm. sense, but it doesn't because there's no way the patient could get to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we do that too with like meds. Like that's why a lot... Uh, there's, especially when you get into these like rural areas, the services, like, as far as I understand, the services become a little bit more sparse and it's harder yes. for like... Like there's not very many mental health clinics already that exist in mm-hmm. the state and in the country. So it's hard for people to get to these specialized clinics. So you have like... So you you'll have these like primary care doctors managing patients they maybe shouldn't because it's mm-hmm. specialists that need to be managed. So then if we make recommendations like go to see the specialist but they can't go, mm-hmm. then the recommendation is useless. You have to yeah. find a way to fit within the yeah, within the world that the patient exists in. A thousand percent. I think a, a related improv technique that this makes me think of and how it could relate to therapy specifically is this idea you know as a therapist especially if it's a client that you're seeing you know long term or you have a bit of a relationship with you of course want to prepare for that session and you might have some form of an agenda or things you want to hit but ultimately you have to be prepared to kind of follow whatever threads or connections or you know agenda they might have yeah and improv training is entirely that like we all have played scenes with those performers who, you know, maybe because they're nervous or because they think they have a brilliant joke, they're breaking the rules of improv and they're coming in with this, like, very specific scene in their head they want to yeah. do. Or they're trying to, like, force a situation so they can drop their joke in, yeah, yeah. which is, like, antithetical to improv technique. You have to, like, have trust in the fact that your tools as an improviser for listening and connecting can bring you into that unknown. Yeah. And so I think those... I guess what I struggle with, once you've, once you've really delved into improv, specifically long-form improv, you you understand viscerally why those little funny games and warm-ups are actually so important to that emotional connection and the ability to create scenes together on stage. But I think it's hard to get maybe attendees at a workshop who've never even seen long-form improv, they might just know who signed this anyways, yeah. to like see beyond this like goofy game yeah and i think i wonder like i think that's where the like the at least what i'm as i'm beginning understanding like that discussion part is so important because that's where it's like that's where they Mm. get to make those connections themselves hopefully if they're engaged the hope is like you come into these workshops and with an open mind yeah um because if you're going to come in and like immediately think that this these games are stupid then i don't think you're going to be able to make those connections like how do you force an open mind i don't really know i mean (laughs) when when students enter into the room i try to like be pretty loose and like the first exercise we do right from the beginning is uh it's called superhero and villain or blocker and uh blocker and attacker but basically 
uh, right when the workshop begins. Um, so as as the students are walking into the room before it's two mm-hmm. o'clock, I'll just sit and I'll chat and stuff. But right when it begins, um, I'll have everyone get up. And we haven't even, I haven't even introduced myself. All I've said is welcome to the workshop. We stand in a circle. I have everyone look around the room. I have them pick two people. One person is the superhero and one person is the villain. Um, and uh, and so the, which is the same as attacker and blocker. I just decided to call it superhero and villain. But mm-hmm. um, so basically the goal of this exercise is to move around the room as quickly as possible to get your superhero in between you and the villain. Yes, I remember this exercise. Yeah. And uh, I like that as an icebreaker because you're moving around you're okay. loose, you're silly, because uh, you invariably end up laughing. People start cornering people. I try to stress, like, let's not hurt each other. We're not trying to, like, yeah. be violent. Actually, I tell them we're not actual superheroes and villains, so don't shoot lasers out of your eyes and don't throw anyone out the window just to kind of yeah. get them smiling and loose because I know they're very nervous because yeah. they're like, I had a student walk in and look at the room, the way the room was set up, which is like in a U, like an improv class, oh, and she yeah. was like, uh, what? Especially, okay, <laughs> this is obviously a stereotype. Which isn't true, but you would think maybe like the people who've already made it to that point in medical school, like they're used to a specific learning yeah. style environment or maybe more. I don't know. I'm actually bringing in my stereotypes of what medical yeah. students are, which is not okay. But I would anticipate a lot of nervous energy sure. around Oh, for openness. sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, but yeah, so in that workshop, the goal of that workshop is to bright, right away mm-hmm. be like, let's just break whatever barrier. At least I think. I don't know. It, it makes me feel yeah. loose. I, that happened when I did Katie Watson's workshop. We're sitting there. Everyone's chatting. And we're all kind of excited for this. So it's a little different. But like, right. we're all sitting there kind of nervously waiting. And then she says, everyone get up. Let's do this thing. So there's 50 of us running around the room like idiots giggling and laughing and you're kind of sweating and it like exerts you so it's like i think that that breaks whatever you have and so i don't know how you force an open mind but i think that that jumps us into something i I love that concept of okay you know you this is actually so applicable when you think there so there are different obviously theories about therapy and different um lenses or styles of therapy and a lot there are a few therapies that i don't want to get too like nitty-gritty on this and i'm obviously i only have a surface level of understanding of some of these but where you're doing specific role plays or activities or exercises in therapy and some of them are really silly and goofy but the idea is like to you can't force someone to be like you know ignore that intrusive thought when they're like no this intrusive thought is literally running my entire life yeah but how do you create that like fake kind of exercise fun environment to get someone into what it would be like to ignore at least a thought doesn't have to be that intrusive thought but like that idea of okay you can't force this transformation in someone Mm -hmm. but you can give them a little taste about what it might feel like for them to to feel differently or approach something differently yeah that's that so i this is a side question the katie watson workshop that you took that was for people like yourself who want to go into conduct those workshops yeah it's called a train the trainer so what what she does, it's a, a five-day um, intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way she sets it up, so like I said, her class is a five-week, um, like when she does it for the students, it's five weeks, two hours every week for five consecutive weeks. Okay. So the way she does this training um, is basically like has us run through the class. I love this. So this may be a, a side note to the professors who are going to be listening to this. I don't know if that's something... Um, I'm definitely going to start suggesting this to other social workers or therapists that I know because 
everything that you're saying to me now, I'm thinking like a million different thoughts in my head of like, oh, you could, you know, take that same idea and apply it to social work in this way or that yeah. way. So that might be super beneficial for, you know, social workers to oh. even take... There was it was it was more than just doctors there. Like, oh really? It was it was literally like, and that's how she that she focuses on medical people. But mm-hmm. her idea is like, this is the curriculum that I do. Take this and do with it what you want in whatever context you want. Right. I so there's like that. there were it was a mix of, um, I think there was a decent amount of doctors and maybe the medical improv in the way because she teaches it at a medical school on the surface it seems like it's only for medical people, but it's literally for anyone because mm-hmm. because of that discussion component that you can do with whatever you want right so there was like there was pharmacists like myself and there were research people and there was a woman who worked with damn it like uh i don't know alzheimer's patients or something like that right so it's like this big mix of people Mm -hmm. because i think it's this uh, the the idea is like there is therapeutic value to this type of work now how you connect it to whatever you're doing is sort of up to you but here are these exercises and they focus on a specific skill which is transferable Mm -hmm. to all that so i think like it's totally um it's very applicable to i didn't realize it was that that flex i didn't realize it was a I had that many different kind of um, yeah. professions in the room and people who are, might be taking those skills yeah. to other areas. And that's just nice to meet other people who, you it's know. It's great. You wow. build a network of people. It, it literally felt, after that workshop, I felt like for five days, I felt like I was on another planet because everyone was like really excited about it and really trying to like do this like cool new thing in yes. their institution some people were like they were like doctors who just wanted to do workshops with other doctors or other people trying to create curriculums there was a woman who uh she was an actor had no medical background but just wanted to uh i think just like teach this class to other professionals mm-hmm. she used to teach this joseph campbell theory or whatever but oh, class really on there but it was pretty cool, cool. anyways <laughs> uh, but uh yeah so like there was a lot of different types of people there in all wide range of ages and experiences and mm-hmm. a lot of people who had never done improv before it was super interesting and what's really cool about her class um is that like in the class over the course of five weeks you start these students doing these little exercises and by mm-hmm. the end of it they're doing real scenes like improv good it's really cool and i think like i do that with my workshop too a little bit so like at the end of my workshop Mm -hmm. we do this game called dr know-it-all yes which is uh dr know-it-all is where like a certain number of people stand on stage they link arms they are together so i do it with six students at a time so these six students are a six-headed person who has a doctorate in everything and they answer questions that we the audience will ask them Mm -hmm. one word at a time and we can ask them anything and anything they say will be correct and it's uh, the idea is like uh working and uh, working as a team yes. not forcing not being able to think ahead because then the sentence won't make any sense and you're mm-hmm. trying to do one word at a time but also like at the end of that exercise which is at the end of the workshop i tell these students i was like two hours ago you'd never done improv before mm. and here we are two hours later you just did improv like you just performed and that was just two hours and look how far you've gone so in this workshop it's that same thing of just like we were doing and because i am an improviser mm-hmm. i was fine doing it but i was watching people who had never done improv be so good like break out of their shell like this nervous yeah like kind of keep themselves small like say the funniest stuff and it's really cool to like you're f- mm-hmm. slowly letting people out of their shell without them almost even realizing that's that's really inspiring to hear because i th- i think that that was something i struggled with when i did try using improv um specifically with my junior high students and high school students a few years ago i was kind of rushing to the like debating whether or not we'd ever do scene work 
because I'm teaching them all about this quote unquote improv, but then they're never actually getting to experience like an improv scene versus throwing that in too early. But I also love the example of the Dr. Know-it-all that you gave this idea of you based on your experience and really, you know, really important knowledge and, and an understanding of things that you might bring to the table as a doctor, a therapist or whatever. But if you are too focused in on your preconceived notions or your judgments or ideas of like this is what is wrong or this is the solution, you might really miss important details. So that idea of even though it's called Dr. Know-it-all, you can't be the know-it-all. Like your yeah. answer in your head is going to change. You all together are the know-it-all. You, the individual, are not the mm-hmm. know-it-all. It's interesting too because like... Oh, I love that idea that you together... Yeah. See, that, that's the thing is there's so many ways you could pull these exercises. My brain feels like it's going to explode just with like all the... It's a lot. I mean, I... And you know, as you were saying that, I don't even really use that exercise as like a teaching tool <laughs> for like their future practice. I just think it's kind of fun to like let them perform i get mm-hmm. to sit down and just kind of chill and like i kind of direct the questions but i yeah, i just used it as like a um highlight that you just became performers in two hours but oh, but yeah. but it also very much has that applicability of like you can't come in with any preconceived notions mm-hmm. because the sentence will not make sense and while you think yes. what you're saying is funny it's gonna like suck like I've watched yes. it happen where kids will try to say stuff that doesn't make sense and everyone, the other students will look and mm-hmm. be like, what did he just say? And I don't want to, I would like, I'm not going to be like, that was wrong. Don't do that again. But right. you could, excuse me, you could use that as a teaching tool of like, go back, say something that makes sense. Watch how much better this team goes and watch how much better this, like, if you were to pretend this was a conversation, mm-hmm. what's the difference between like a conversation of like, I'm not listening to you and you're not listening to me as opposed to like, we're listening to each other and fi- yes. feeding and building off of each other. Well, that makes me think even just on the other side of the the relationship, you know, as a patient, I went to a doctor's appointment with my partner just last week and you could tell the doctor really, really cared and was compassionate and, and smart, but she wasn't listening to my partner. My partner was saying what was wrong and different symptoms and she clearly had this end result of what she thought it was yeah and it was just interesting watching you know my partner and she was trying to like you know actually i think it's this or you know that that's not really an issue for me yeah but the doctor kept like Like, trying to force it down this path and yeah it was interesting just being an observer in the room about that oh yeah well we should yeah, we're not like yeah it almost sounds like she, your your partner was like forced to diagnose herself almost like yeah it's like I, it's like i'm not supposed to tell you what i think like you should help me like there was i had a similar um i went to go get a blood test and the uh, we have like a history of high cholesterol in my family and my dad and grandfather um both had bypass surgery so i was telling this doctor i was like can we just do like a a lipid panel. I want to get my mm-hmm. cholesterol checked. Or I was talking. I want to get my blood t- chest or blood levels checked. And he said something along the lines of like, "Yeah, well, you're well, you're a young guy. You don't need to check your cholesterol." And I was like, "No, dude. Like, but it's like it's that same idea of like you're gonna make an assumption because I am young. Maybe I don't exactly. need to worry. But like, you gotta listen to me, man. Like, if you would have listened to what I said or my reasons, maybe you would have been like, oh, that makes sense.' Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what you're showing me is that these exercises but then just as important the discussion afterwards help kind of harness the power of both like these abstract or metaphorical ideas and then actually what it feels like to do that yeah and since whoever's going to be in these workshops their learning styles are different so some people are more like 
abstract theoretical thinkers they want to hear you explain or how you know you can apply this it's going to make you more open to a client's experience and so you won't be missing all these important things based on your assumptions versus someone who like needs to just sit in an exercise and feel what yeah. that feels like because that's something i struggle with is how how would a workshop be designed to meet all those learning styles and that's that's just like a really simple way to make sure you're hitting both Oh, I see. Yeah. I was going to say, too, like, I mean, I keep it pretty small, um, which doesn't Mm. necessarily change the variability of the types of people. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I try to – I don't – actually, I don't even know. How do you hit everything? I mean, you do a little bit of both. But it's Mm. like I think that there are people – It's you try to do your best to make sure everyone is focused and stays in. I find that with – excuse me, I think my nose is a little stuffy. But I find that with, like, smaller groups, it's pretty good. You can actually look people in the eye. Mm. Um, That's – Katie does it like that. I've been trying to focus on 12. I was also, like, I didn't know if I could do bigger people. Okay. So I would say stay small if you are going to do a workshop. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think, too, a lot of these skills are applicable for therapists who want to do group sessions or, like, they lead groups. Yeah. That I'm just, like, everyone should take improv. I think so. I think, like, I really find, like, the – like the on a on a personal basis and i think the reason why i'm so like want to do this sort of work is like improv has been very um uh like i don't want to it's been a very therapeutic experience for me to Mm. be able to like explore my own vulnerabilities and like um go up on stage and scream i tend i have a tendency to like bottle Mm. up a lot of my emotions um and this has helped me become better at expressing my emotions Mm -hmm. and an improv on stage is a safe place to like yell at someone or have a breakup with someone or cry over a like pretend sick child and like mm-hmm. not that I've never been I've never been in that situation but we've been in sad situations and yeah. like it really helps process a lot of stuff and like I think a lot of people I think more people should take improv and like do something that's very scary and like so these yeah. workshops while they're not improv improv are let getting people into a a, a scary headspace mm-hmm. I think that they would normally not have done in school like there were there weren't too many things in school that scared me I knew I was going to be taking classes and the test obviously made me nervous but it was just like it's not the type of right. nerves and vulnerability that like mm. improv type stuff does so yeah. even these exercises where I'm not having them do any um like performance work really alone I mean they're doing that little game at the end but it's like you're still a lot of students are being put into these really uncomfortable places and like even with the like providers or the therapists or like professionals like like i did it with mm-hmm. my coworkers once and you could tell everyone was like oh, we're gonna have to make each other laugh and i was like this isn't that we're not we're just out here doing stuff but it's like you put the i think it's good mm-hmm. to put people in that sort of position where it's like you are about to be very vulnerable and yes. you're about to learn some stuff about yourself and i think that that's great that is always when people are like why do you do improv or i'm trying to communicate to someone why i love it that is the thing i'm that's my number one answer is it helps me be comfortable in fear it didn't make me like escape fear but i am comfortable sitting in a scared and anxious place and like i don't know what's coming next i don't know what to do maybe there are like you know 50 pairs of eyes on me but i can like sit and breathe through it and respond i find it shocking how many of my coworkers, and this is probably just an everybody thing but like how many people are scared of like um presenting and i understand it because i know that's like a life fear like it's like Mm -hmm. the number one fear right of like being on stage and having everyone on you and it's like we go through school and we do all this stuff to hide 
Yeah. Like, what are oh, we doing I here? I love that. Right? That's like, so true. Like, we just go through life to hide, and I think that that's kind of bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I hide all the time. If I'm cursing, I'm sorry, but... Um, <laughs> no, like, no, we can curse. Like, I go through... Like, I mean, I get scared all the time, but it's like, we shouldn't be hiding. We should oh. be going out there and doing stuff and exposing ourselves, and mm-hmm. you'll learn that it's not that scary. Or, or you'll learn... I think the best is the way you said it. It was like, you'll learn to live in that fear, because that's, that's not going away. Yes. Like, Bill Hader... I don't know if I told you, but I was watching this... Uh, um, YouTube. There used to be this. Uh, I think Paul F. Tompkins used to run on YouTube called Speakeasy, where he would just yes, interview people. Yes, I've seen a bunch of those. And he had this really cool one with Bill Hader from SNL, and Bill Hader said he was scared every day he was on SNL until the last day. But he said there were times where he had to get pushed up onto stage. Wow. That's, that blew my mind because yeah, I was like, he's just he's insane. incredible. Yeah. He's at like kind of what like I guess kind of the peak of comedy in mm-hmm. one respect being on snl right like that would be amazing yeah. if you could be on snl however you feel about it if they called me today and said you want to be on snl i'd be like hell yeah <laughs> and, and he was scared every day and it's like yeah you don't stop being scared i don't i don't expect to ever stop being scared mm-hmm. of stuff but it's like how do you learn to embrace that a little bit more and live in that space and be yes. like okay to control it and yeah and i think improv has been very valuable for me that yeah that is exactly the sentiment that's what as therapists or social workers we want all of our clients to eventually that's what we want for people to achieve you know like whatever Uh, it doesn't matter what profession you're in it doesn't matter if you are the client or the you know even outside of the client professional dynamic like that is the i feel like one of the secrets to just like improving your quality of life yeah yeah Mm. yeah It's, it's it's been an interesting transition and i think that like that's why even I hope this little workshop just gives some student an insight into like doing more of those things because I don't think people realize like you're in these professions like mm-hmm. you're you're doing un- literally probably every single time someone walks into your clinic you have you have no idea what's about to happen no and that is one thing I hear from a lot of fellow students doing their internships it's something I felt when I was doing my internship last year and then obviously still social workers who might be practicing for years but that there will be moments in a session where like I have no freaking clue what to do with this especially because I worked with teens in a school setting last year and there would be times where it's like halfway through the session like I don't know where to go with any of this and it wasn't even that the information was so heavy yeah or that the student was you know not talking they might be super chatty or you know there might not be something pressing I just sometimes didn't know what to do and I would freeze up or be panicking but improv really helps you practice over and over almost until it feels like it's building new neural pathways of how when you feel that lockup coming how do you breathe and then listen to the other person so that you can find the next steps in what they're presenting and in that in a way and this is again it's so hard to communicate this or I guess explain how improv does this to you, but it's not forcing your scene partner to do all the work and dictate where the scene is going to go. Or it's not forcing your your client to tell you where the therapy session should go. It's saying like whatever little bit that you share or that you bring, I can then pull a thousand different threads from that. So no one is doing all the work and you know you can only ever truly do it together. Has there been a shift in like how therapy sessions work? Because like in my head, Mm -hmm. like the stereotypical idea of a therapy session is like, you're there doing all the talking and the other person is there listening and maybe asking questions is it like is the idea like to just have a conversation that is a more of a directed conversation that you're directing i guess that's a beautiful question and one that i can only say rather than like answering it with confidence just because 
I'm only a social work student. I don't have enough experience. But being a social work student, just the amount of different styles of therapy that there are. Oh, I see. And then even within those styles, different personalities might make it feel very differently. Sure. So I think a lot of people nowadays and where we are and are thinking about therapy and social work and psychology that for I, I would I feel confident saying like the majority of sessions should not be the practitioner talking and leading the person yeah but also the whole like stereotypical well how do you feel about yeah. or how does that make you feel like that's also not accurate i think it really truly depends on the type of therapy ah. um the client you're working with the sure. setting there's a style or like a technique called motivational interviewing and it's really gaining popularity now within um like social work and psychology fields and it's a it reminds me so much of improv because it's a style of listening and then eliciting responses that when you're hearing someone do it or someone's explaining with the technique sorry you're like oh that's easy or like like you know it doesn't seem like a big deal yeah but then you watch these videos or in class we'd watch your professors do these role plays where you're like oh that's magic oh cool like just the way you respond to something there's all these ways that they show you that you can respond to a client that actually shut them down or mm. narrow their response to you or like that i don't even realize i'm doing and after watching someone do it i'm like wow that's like literally it feels like a magician cool like very like almost like verbal judo or whatever yeah i mean that does sound like improv right like with improv you're trying to continue to build the scene you don't want stuff to Mm -hmm. you don't want to say or do things that'll potentially shut the scene down i think you're always trying to build the right like hmm cool i've heard of the term motivational interviewing but i've never uh i'm i'm not very familiar with it but that sounds cool i'll have to check out some videos yeah i would definitely recommend just youtubing stuff some of them are cheesy but some are like oh wow there's a lot on there about people working ignore oh the neighbors noise is around here (laughs) there's a lot of example sessions of smoking cessation or people who are trying to overcome addiction yeah and it's the idea of like they're different there's a spectrum of like not wanting to change thinking about wanting to change being ready for change and then acting on that change and so motivational interviewing helps you get a feel for where the client is and then you can't start talking about change behavior if that person's not even in a mental place to yeah. consider wanting to change. Ah, cool. So it's it gets really subtle with that. But again, it's all like listening and then little responses that yeah. elicit from... The, and that's exactly what improv is. Like, you don't know where the scene is going to go. Huh. You don't know what's going to take place. But like, um, you're constantly checking in with your scene partner and then going from there. That's... Uh, so like, I feel like the... Like in pharmacy school, we're taught how to treat smoking cessation but the like how to get someone to be open to treating their smoking cessation or that motivational interviewing is not a focus like i didn't really Mm. learn until rotations like we did this one where like this guy had had two different spots on his lungs and still continued like cancer spots on his lungs and still continued to smoke and his girlfriend wouldn't hang out with him anymore and he still continued to smoke and his friends wouldn't Mm. kick it with him anymore still continued to smoke and so he was like i really gotta quit now and so we tried to find like some of my uh preceptor told me she was like let's find a date let's let's let him pick a date to quit Mm -hmm. because if we just tell him you got to stop on tuesday it's not going to matter so he picked mother's day or whatever day it was and and so like it was and i think they came from like chatting with him and trying to figure out like what his values were uh, and then came to to that but i feel like that's uh that's lost in a lot of schooling like it sounds like pharmacists and social workers need to 
meld into one individual person so we can pharmacists can be better at getting people to take their meds yeah i feel like all of that is so applicable in every field every field yeah i just the way education is designed or like professionalization of certain fields are designed it just creates so much rigidity yeah in such a it's so like formulaic yeah or process focused and i think that's kind of where the queer theory comes into play of like how do you break out of that or how do you look at that from a different lens Mm -hmm. how do you like rebuild those processes with different language with different goals all of that but okay it's about eight we're like um 53 minutes in okay and then what time do you need because you actually have you have an improv show tonight i do i love that (laughs) uh i don't need to leave until nine i can stay here until forever Okay, then I think what I... There's just so much to talk about. And there's so many ways to take the conversation, just thinking about social work and queer theory and all of that. I guess what was really helpful is hearing just like, again, the example of the exercise you do. Because... Do I know about other exercises? Yeah, I think so. Oh, sure. And so there's like... uh, Yeah, I guess the disclaimer is like there's like a bazillion exercises that can be related to and you can connect. And as I build my workshop, I'll probably tweak and change. So these are just the ones that I found success in my workshop so far. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do this other one um, called Walk Laika, which is um, uh, something that you've probably done in improv class before, which is you just have the the students walk around quietly uh, and then embody different characters. Um, and so they're, they're really not talking. It's just sort of my voice leading them. So like I have them start off by walking as themselves Mm -hmm. and then I have them switch to a 55 year old woman. And then we put this woman through different situations. So she's like Mm. a banker and then she's the regional chain manager of a national chain of banks. And so it's like, how does this make you feel now? So you'll see like kids generally, obviously it's about everyone's own individual experience, but mostly that's a positive emotion. So you'll see students kind of perk up and stand straight. Then I'll say like... You've just been caught embezzling money and the police are, the feds are waiting for you. And so you'll see people like cower down and almost try to like hide within their hands. And again, mm-hmm. everyone's expression of that will vary a little bit. But you, you notice this shift from like standing up tall to slowing down their walk and really yes. basically being like, oh shit. Like that's mm-hmm. what their body is screaming. Oops, sorry. Um, and then we have them, then I have them do like a 25 year old surfer dude. It's like a young, mm-hmm. young man. And then have him go through like, um, he just got into by, by a, biochemistry school some med school i forgot what it was uh or marine biology school and then um have his parents get divorced and so how does he feel now and then they do a back pain example of acute back pain versus chronic back pain someone who had it just right now versus someone who had it for a year and how does that shift Mm -hmm. and so the conversation is about um and so you could do for your thing you could probably do different types of whatever you're trying to even like you know instead of acute back pain versus whatever like depression and then Obviously, there's so many things you talk about in the discussion after yeah. the exercise, but like everybody's walking around with the same diagnosis, quote unquote, yeah. depression, but it looks different Super for everyone. Different. So it's like, oh, this is so brilliant. Yeah. And so that's wow. like with, and so the idea is like, there isn't a demographic cardboard cutout, right? So it's like, yes. we, there's not within our own brain, a 55 year old woman isn't what you think a 55 year old mm-hmm. woman is between all of you. You all did 55 women year old differently. I have them with each character. I have them say a name in the voice that they think. And so it's like, it's all kind of this mumbled noise, but everyone right. saying a different name in a different tone. Right. Yes. So like, and then with the, and yeah, so for us, the back pain is a diagnostic. We talk about just like, um, People present pain and conditions differently. People's tolerances are different. Some mm-hmm. people, uh, like up, up on that, like 
the pain scale, which is this super, it's this subjective scale of zero to 10 of like yeah. zero is not that much and 10 is a lot, which there's no basis in a thing. It's just what mm-hmm. your own personal um, baselines are. But anyways, so it's like everyone represents pain differently. Some people have yes. had pain for a long time and it's like it doesn't exist for them. And so if you ask them, are you in pain? They might say no, or mm-hmm. they might say yes. And it's like, but uh, yeah, it's a sort of understanding that there's a um, um, like a, people present differently one student said that he realized that when he changed his physicality his face didn't change and that made him think about how he comes off to patients which i didn't even expect a self-realization to happen um one student said something along the lines of she's like i kind of understand maybe what my sister is going through a little bit with her pain and it's just like she might not be showing as much pain Mm. as she actually has so that's kind of cool i don't know if that's an expected thing but the idea is like the the basic idea is like there isn't a democrat there isn't a um um, like a cardboard cutout of a, an emotion. Your depression is different from my depression, or whatever condition yes. you want to use. Your anxiety and all that stuff is very That's different. That's such a brilliant exercise. I love that. And then I just like the idea that as you do more of these workshops, you'll get different examples of students' responses. And so maybe not every workshop will have a student saying, oh, I noticed my facial expression didn't change, but you can bring that example up. So I did, like, and it was weird because then I felt like I was just putting something onto them. Oh, that's but, interesting. Okay. Because I was, yeah, because I said it, and then I was like, don't feel like you had to feel that. But you're right. Uh, you, I am trying to figure out a good way to, because this is a collective thing. These are individual mm-hmm. workshops, but it's like, it's good to know what other students discovered, yeah. and you can present that to them, right? And it's like, yeah, I, don't, I just have to figure out a better way to say it other than like... Uh, I think I just didn't present it in the most uh, correct way. I felt like I was thrusting it upon to them as opposed to just saying, this is some other stuff that other students had. Well, that's a good point because I think a lot of times in therapy, therapists can struggle with trying to force a realization on someone. And I didn't come to that. Yeah. So that's a good example of, okay, yeah, that might have been like brilliant for another client. But in this situation now, it just feels weird or awkward that you've like forced in this. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a really good point. And that was only because I was like, uh, I went from like two different workshops. Like one workshop, the discussion was killer, and the other mm. workshop, the discussion was regular. Mm-hmm. And so I started to get a little nervous. I'm like, there's more stuff that they need to know, but it's like, yeah, we'll figure. I mean, I I figure it's a uh, with each session, I just figure I'll get a better understanding of how to run those workshops. But but I, that that exercise is really great. The students like it. Uh, a lot of kids say empathy as well which mm. uh, i was talking to someone else about it today and i don't know if that's a canned response that they think that they're supposed to feel another person's pain or did they legitimately like uh feel like by embodying it did they change because i try to ask them like did anyone's emotion change at all like because yeah. i noticed like in shows like we're told like uh keegan who was my now my teammate on a few teams but he used oh, to yeah. be my coach one of the things he said and one of the, i think one of the biggest fears improvisers have or when people watch improv this idea that like what happens when i get up on stage and i have nothing and what Keegan told us was like, your body is your something. So notice your physicality and it'll oh, affect that. your emotions. And so like, that's a thing I try to ask them or like, you, if like one, I just asked them, did their physicality change their emotion? And then also maybe if you're looking at your patients, like mm-hmm. maybe their physicality is changing how they think. And maybe like, I don't know, it's like standing up straighter may change how they feel about themselves. Cause I notice in myself, if I'm slouching, I'm, it seems to be connected to when I'm feeling small. Yeah. And I could be wrong. That's yeah. a self-diagnosis. But like standing up straight and tall kind of makes me change a little bit. Even a little blip in my head of like mm-hmm. makes me think like think stronger, son. I think that's that's an awesome point. And I think that 
is real. Yeah, who knows if it's a canned response? Two things canned response. Two things can be true at once. Maybe yeah. they knew they were supposed to expect that, and maybe they also really felt that. Yeah. But the idea of like feeling what it feels like to be in those different physicalities or those different scenarios is so important because you know I was taking a class last quarter on complex trauma and the professor who taught it had like decades of work specifically with youth and adolescents who you know they might have been referred or seeking therapy for something specific but there are so many layers to their trauma like not just one thing like experiencing a national disaster or a robbery it might be like layers upon layers of different traumatic you know long-term or short-term things that they've endured and he was a big proponent of like really not coming to conclusions based on physicality or body language and posture but really kind of seeing what those small details can clue you in about how they feel. Yeah, like noticing those little things, right? And I assume like, yeah, and you're a professional, like those things are probably very important to key in on some mm-hmm. of those things. Like with, I mean, my job, I don't have any patient interaction. So everything is over the phone or looking at a computer. So I don't have to like cue in or key in on patient stuff. But it's like, I, I do that with my my coworkers sometimes yeah. and looking at their body and being like, oh, okay, maybe I don't, this person doesn't want to talk to me today. But mm-hmm. like with you, I think it probably is super important for um, like social workers and therapists to like be able to feed off and doctors too, to be able to look at a patient and kind of understand what their body is giving off. Cause yeah, you don't want it to fully dictate how yeah. you operate, but it is something it, it, it's an extra tool, a visual tool that's being given to you. Like I had a, um, so you, like, you know, when you go to a, a a primary care checkup or whatever mm. and they ask you like are you depressed are you sad like the when the nurse was asking me she wasn't even looking at me she was just like looking at the computer and maybe she assumed yes. that i was fine and i was but it was just like you should look at me when you ask me those questions right like i think i don't because I, I don't think like those are just questions you ask you're not expecting it's just the same as like when you ask someone like hey what's going on you don't yes. expect them to be like oh my god i'm so sad it's like i'm fine i'm good exactly so i think that's what it was she didn't expect me to say anything mm-hmm. and so she just was like all right cool we're just gonna ask this and move forward yes that's a huge issue that i mean it, you find yourself facing that in a lot of um not just government or agencies but like a lot of nonprofit agencies anywhere where they're you know you with liability and, and or just like how do you streamline or make something more efficient you have all these assessments that get done in the first session and you're asking like really invasive hardcore questions like have you experienced sexual abuse you know what kind of like this is like before you even the patient really even knows you or the person even knows you oftentimes and this is oftentimes policy of the organization yeah before like the first thing you do in your first session yeah and it's just, it feels horrible to do that. And I, I had a wonderful supervisor last year um, who, that was the first thing we worked on. She's like, because of our organization, we have to go through this really hardcore, like violence and assault assessment with the these junior high students who can opt out of the program at any time. Yeah. And um, so she, she taught me a lot of ways to like present the questions and kind of like give a human to human feeling like, you know, this is the reason why we have this assessment and like it can feel uncomfortable. Like she was really great about that. But a lot of people, A, don't have the training or B, don't feel like they have the time. Yeah. To provide it. Maybe you have like there's some assessments that can take like 40 minutes to go through. And then you're bringing up trauma as they're asking these questions. but Not doing anything. So, yeah, I think that seems like a terrible like (laughs) like. Yeah. How 
that seems interesting because like who created that those like who's the one that says you have to ask these assessments like the organization up the top organization a lot of times i mean i don't know there's i think there's a lot of different answers to that question it just seems like that uh, and uh, again very far from the outside but it's like that sounds like a terrible idea you think people are just gonna open up to you up top mm-hmm. unless you unless you say it in a in a way that you're uh you're like supervisor or whoever. I forgot mm-hmm. who you said she was, but the person above you, um, yeah, like does it. But it's like those are, I don't know. I mean, I don't know too many people who are willing to talk about that stuff. Up yeah, top. yeah. It's, I think, if anything, a lot of the tools and and techniques you can get from improv help you. I get caught up a lot in like changing the system versus like how to be effective and compassionate within the system. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, I might not be able to start an organization or join this radical organization that does things a certain way. Maybe I'm stuck at an agency. Yeah. Um, but like clients there are in need of those services. So how do I make that a more like compassionate and client focused experience for them? And improv can really help you, I feel like, show up in a room differently, even if you don't get to determine what the room looks like. Yeah. I think that improv and yeah, I think that that's very correct. Like in the simplest sense, like improv makes you understand, like to like begin, at least in your brain, understand that like, you can't just come into every room the exact same. Mm -hmm. You have to, I don't want to say shape shift, but basically shape, you have to like adjust Mm -hmm. and change a little bit. And yeah, you're right. Exactly. Like, yeah, it highlights that idea that like you have to, every situation is kind of its own situation. You can't, come into it with like you have to i mean when you're a professional you come into it with your preconceived stuff mm-hmm. but you have to be ready to like shift what you need to say to um what the situation is we do that so I, i've been volunteering with this organization called humor for hope oh, where we do yes. um where we do uh improv for kids in um in uh, a hospital specifically out of a uh, comers children's hospital at the university of chicago oh amazing um and so mostly these kids are like uh they're c- kids and sort of that they range from like baby to 17 or 18 we don't okay. we don't really do improv for babies they're not, <laughs> like they're not the best audience they don't <laughs> respond they puke a lot at yeah, the shows they fall so. asleep um but uh yeah we go into these rooms of kids who normally can't leave you, most of them are in isolation not all of them um, and we kind of do improv for them. It's a lot of short form games. Um, sometimes it's just like we're not doing any improv. We're just like messing around with them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is like you kind of go into these rooms and you sort of have to feel the vibe of the room and just yes. understand like, yes. like not every kid is there because they're super duper sick. Some had surgery, but there's some real, there's some real like heavy conditions in there, right? Mm-hmm. So like some kids who just legit can't live, leave the room because so there's one kid. He couldn't leave the room because he had C. diff, which is very infectious uh, poop. Oh, wow. Uh, and it can... I, I've never had it, uh, but it, you can get it. Um, I think like one of the ways you can get it is if you're on a lot of antibiotics. Because antibiotics can really ruin your gut bacteria. Yes. And so it can just let, uh, can, I guess, let, in the simplest sense, like let bad bacteria thrive. And so you gotcha. can get these sort of conditions. There's other reasons, too, that I think C. diff can happen. But oh, So this kid couldn't leave the room. So we were just chatting with him, and we were like, so what do you want to do? And he's like, I really just want to leave this room. And so we couldn't take him out of the room, but we just, for 15 minutes, just made poop jokes. And it was super yeah. fun. And it's just like, uh, but that's the going into the room and not thinking. Like, we, I guess we could have forced improv games on him, but he just wanted to talk about poop. So we just, like, talked about poop. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea behind that organization is um, uh, it was started by this really amazing woman named Hope England. Who was a trauma therapist, or so? Yeah, so she was cool. a trauma therapist for victims of gunshot violence. Wow! Um, and so she was also an improviser. 
And so she was walking around in the hospital where she was working, and she saw this kid that was in a um, in an ISO or whatever, and she wanted to play with the kid, but they couldn't take anything into the room. And so she was like, "Oh, I can do improv." Yeah. So she just started like playing around with this kid, and saw that it brought a big smile to her face. And over the years, turned it into this organization that's now like an official like five hundred one c three volunteer organization. Beautiful. Um, and we volunteer out at Comer Children's Hospital every Wednesday, and it's like a group of us. It's small. They're trying to expand significantly, and just for like two hours, um, try to go into kids rooms and like make them smile and stuff but the core idea is that like um humor can be very therapeutic i love this um it's really cool and a lot of it i've come to realize i've only been doing it for about a year but i've come to realize like we're also giving these families tools like when they're bored a lot of these kids are like and families are in the hospital forever and it's real boring in the hospital and they can't do that much other than watch tv so mm-hmm. it's like here are these games you guys can you guys can play where you don't need anything other than just like um an openness to be silly wow it's awesome it's really cool that's yeah yeah, that's a beautiful example of what you might come into a situation with an idea of what this person needs or i have this fun game or this you know therapeutic exercise but sometimes it's not that at all it's what no what the the client needs might be something different or something that's might seem on the surface of just like telling poop jokes yeah but it's much more than that oh big time yeah it's like you're really doing this healing thing but like really i think like Mm -hmm. highlights that idea that like um this like like health and medicine and like humor and these sort of self-expressive things are um like they're not separate they're open like so so there was this one girl she was this sweet girl she was maybe eight or nine but she was just kind of sad and really quiet so we play this game (laughs) humor for hope i guess sort of they're we play this game called kitty cat career which is basically charades yeah it's really fun (laughs) and so we were doing it so uh if you haven't it's uh and you are doing a profession um and you're not speaking you're just making cat sounds but you're acting like you're typing on the key if maybe it's like administrative assistant you're like meow 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 like yeah. typing it's you're typing so in. silly if yes. you feel so stupid but when everyone's doing it it's the funniest thing in the it's world great so this girl really quiet whispering the things that um like the professions that we are and eventually i pretended to be this teacher and she goes my second grade teacher <laughs> and then for 10 minutes we got her to open up and we're not even there to try to get oh, her to wow. open up we're just there to get them to talk and be yeah. loose and so she started telling us about why she hates school and about mm. her second grade teacher and all this other crazy stuff and we went and this was in within five to ten minutes yes. of playing this little game and it was amazing because it's like we got her to open up we weren't there to get her to open up mm-hmm. we weren't trying we just wanted to engage her but we just did like that is seems like a very valuable tool to yes. get if you were if we were trying to get her to talk about stuff instead of being like hey tell us about why you hate second grade she was she wouldn't have said in the beginning if we would have asked her any if i would have asked those same questions at the beginning of that yes nothing she would have given us not a single thing a thousand percent even at the uh, I was at a organization and there was one student who wasn't on my caseload but I had gotten to know pretty well um, just because it was a lot of community work and we were doing this big kind of end of the year celebration slash presentation and the way that they had formatted the presentation it's not something that every student would be interested in it was a lot of like presenting or giving speeches things like that and this boy had been labeled like a lot of different things or like a troublemaker this and that and they were all like oh no he's not going to want to do it like we, he doesn't have to participate he doesn't want to do it so i was like can i just go talk to him over there and it was nothing that i said or did or elicited it was all just improv techniques and then responding to what he's saying that all of a sudden he had 
answered that one of the the presentation topics was like if you could change anything at the school what would it be and at first like, i don't know like nothing there's <laughs> nothing that can change but that's because they had present they had asked him to answer the whole question at once whereas like we went off in the corner and we were bouncing back and forth next thing you know he had like a whole world of almost like policy level changes yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then a lot of it was like affirming like this is this is blowing my mind like this is brilliant like a lot of people don't know this or you have a lot of knowledge and then not only that but getting him to be like okay so maybe you don't want to get up and share this as a speech but like what other ways could we present this information that you'd be comfortable with and the presentation ended up being just night and day different because now we had all of his knowledge shared up there he wasn't the one presenting it yeah um but we found an, another way to deliver it anonymously and he was sitting in the audience and he was so proud and yeah he, it, but everyone's like how did you do that and i'm like it wasn't me i didn't do anything but it, it literally was just improv techniques yeah that's really interesting i i noticed that sometimes like uh like um whenever i'm at my house and my cousin brings her little kid over everyone will be like oh he's really excited because you're here now and it's like because sometimes i feel like adults don't I don't know, like specifically with children, and probably this yes. is transferable to adults as well. But like, I don't think people know how to speak to kids. They don't a know lot. how to listen to kids. That's exactly correct. They don't yes. listen to children. They just tell them shit. What do like, you want to be when you grow up? Like what? Yeah. It's always these weird questions. And then they stare at them, <laughs> and it's like, just let the kid talk. This little dude, my cousin's kid, tells me about black holes and gives me basically <laughs> straight up science presentations because I just listen and I yes. ask him questions, like not in this like. I'm not trying to quiz him. I'm mm-hmm. like trying to like inquire and just let him do his thing. And it's yeah. And I think that's with people too. Like it's like how do you speak to people? Right? And that's probably how. That's basically the premise of like a, a social worker, right? like talking to people or like yes, understanding that, how people operate. That's exactly it. And that's what like improv has given me. I can walk onto any stage with any other improviser, maybe if I've never even met them before. Yeah. And like we can sync up together, and, and then create something. And, and therapy is the same thing like in these classes we're always talking about building rapport with your client but we often don't know like all we know is that it's important but we yeah. don't learn how to do it there's no tools on how to do that or there's been some students like what they're going through is so intense we would just get a bag of hot cheetos and sit on a bench like we're not even looking at each other yeah we're just eating and people watching and then maybe at the end of the session it's like a full face-to-face like hardcore eye contact really getting it not that every session has to be that intense yeah but the idea of, you know, how do you meet someone in their reality and build that connection instantaneously? Well, it's not always instantaneous, but how do you how do you do that in a short time span? Do that- you see the Office episode where uh, Michael had to do like therapy sessions with uh, um, uh, with Toby? I don't know if you remember. Are you a big no, Office fan? Yes, but I can't remember. So there's this basically episode. there's so. Uh, Two characters had to do a therapy session. One character did not. Michael Scott did not want to open up. So what they started doing was they just started coloring. Toby was like, whatever, we'll just color. And while they're coloring, Michael Scott started slowly opening up. Mm -hmm. Because it's like you're not, we're not, I don't want to say tricking them, but you're like trying to get them comfortable. Because it is the, like, if you can get people loose and comfortable, they're going to tell you things, I think. Mm -hmm. Or they're more willing to open up, at least I find. Even in just interpersonal relationships, like, you can make them feel comfortable. Then people will tell you things if you want them to tell you things and they'll open up. But if you're just like, oh my God, tell me about (laughs) whatever, some deep Mm -hmm. stuff. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not comfortable. I'm not going to tell you that stuff. That's what that Cheeto eating thing sounded like. It's just like, we're going to sit, yes. we're going to chill, and then we'll ease into it. And then yeah. get to what we need to get to. Yeah, and with a lot of youth, the idea of like, verbally saying, we don't ever have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about. Or <sighs> if this is uncomfortable, we can pause it or you know, we can start. But I feel like, especially when you're a youth, you already feel like there's no control or so little control that you have. 
and then kind of like reframe that therapy session be like you're my boss like i'm here to serve you and especially with this program i was at last year you know we'd tell this youth all the time like you can fire me at any time like the goal at the end of the year is for you to be able to fire me because you don't need this anymore. who are you telling who are you telling that they can fire you the youth like if this isn't working for you if this isn't i mean obviously there are ways and situations in which you say that i understand but you're saying trying to let them know that like yeah when you feel like you don't need me tell me to go yeah or even like you have a lot of control over what this session looks like uh because otherwise you know why would you reveal that kind of vulnerability yeah um why are these uh like why how are you getting assigned to these children so at this particular program they were all referred so mostly for behavioral issues or from the school counselor for some kind of like intense mental health need or some kind of like trauma that was going on but we found that most of them were just referred because they had been labeled like the the quote-unquote troublemaker in the class do those labels like do you find that those labels like stick throughout their lives then oh yeah i mean there were my supervisor had students that she would see over the course of like years moving through the school and seeing how those reputations followed them even if things improved like because that label had been given to them yeah Huh. Or even just affiliation or like if there were parents or cousins, uncle, whatever that are gang affiliated, then how does that label get attached to the, the uh, student? Yeah. Just, I mean, everything you could possibly imagine, but it almost always had nothing to do with the student and was like the school environment and like the toxic school culture. Yeah. And the wild thing, and I think it's interesting about like the discussion part with these games and your workshops like the important part is not just like let me do this magical exercise on you but you seeing what the connections are from that exercise or how can you incorporate this tool yeah i tried to do that a lot with students to be like okay this is like not being like therapy should never feel like a magic trick done upon you as a client like if i can translate the tool or the theory that i am using to understand your situation or understand a possible like not, I don't want to say solution because we're not magic solution providers, but I, I want to be able to transfer all of my knowledge or the tools I have that might be able to be of assistance yeah. to the youth. And so I would have youth that would come back, you know, the next week and, you know, tell me about a big disruption that happened in class. And then she would sit there and be like, you know, but I saw the teacher was standing like this and she kept doing X, Y, and Z. And I think this is going on in her life. And so now every time <laughs> this one kid, he's got some behavioral issues, but the teacher like almost wants to make him do something so she can get mad at him. So she can, like, she was emotionally Damn. mapping this entire classroom system in a way that I'm like, you should be doing therapy. Yeah. But also having her kind of, there's one other student who had, um, she was working on a relationship with her father and she was working on her relationship with her father? You yeah, okay. it wasn't, it, it was causing her a lot of distress. Gotcha. And so sometimes we'll have um, clients do genograms where you're mapping out the family. And so we had done that with her and I when we started the session. Like I showed her my own genogram. Uh, is that different from like what what is it it's just like connecting like this is my grandparents this is my yeah these are the children of my grandparents and and then you can layer things in there like you know you you create your own symbols to be like so this dotted line means like my relationship with my dad is not not great cool and oftentimes a therapist wouldn't reveal any of that personal information but my supervisor said like okay in this program we show our genogram and we show those like difficult things on our own because then how can we expect the student to just reveal it about their family so so a lot i mean that's 
wouldn't necessarily be appropriate in a lot of different settings sure. and this one that was how the program worked and it that i you know i think every student i had you could tell they were like oh she's showing me this like okay and then they would share theirs so we had cool. used that tool and then later like halfway through the year that student had then taken the genogram or taken that tool and been like you know what i think i want to do this with my dad and so she did a genogram of her dad and but was like i don't think he ever had a relationship with his father and like he doesn't know what that looks like and he doesn't know how to do that with me and so we had a huge talk about Whoa, how old is this kid she was 13 Damn. no she was 12 at that at that point cool and this idea of that doesn't excuse your dad's behavior but it takes out that horrible feeling of like something's wrong with me that he's responding in that way and that's like i mean if you don't catch that difference you can spend your whole life with like the this perception of yourself that's just not true and i mean that's when you any youth you work with you're like you are you know you contain the entire world you're amazing you deserve the best but you know if you can't see that yeah. because you're experiencing those things and yeah. it was just is a beautiful moment but it had it wasn't anything i did it was because she had the tool and then she could apply it yeah i also think it is something you did i mean you opened up and allowed yourself to be vulnerable and expose yourself like expose expose yourself to the child expose <laughs> your like whatever it is that you yeah. have to the kid i mean that's the that's the she obviously did the work but it's like that was the the opening scene or whatever opening line oh, for the scene I that let her like that. or whatever i did that but that's amazing that's yeah. really cool i wonder i think sometimes like um uh, like about that and like like do you think that there's enough of a, a focus for mental health in children no no yeah i mean and this is something i even though i'm like i love mental health this is what i want my life's focus to be yeah i have another friend who's a social worker also got into improv so we geek out all the time about like how to connect the two but she does her focus is infant mental health and i was like what like infant mental health and yeah. how so much is there and it's wild because now she has a lot of expertise in that area she will get baby photos of like her own family and she'll be she'll be like look at this photo what do you see i'm like oh, i see xyz and then she's like look at how my mom's holding me and look at my reaction to her and she's picking up on things that are already going on emotionally before someone even reaches one years old but yeah i don't think there's enough of a focus on it at all i think in that complex trauma course it was wild because if you don't have language at the time a trauma occurs that trauma is being stored in your brain differently than after you have. like there's just so uh, many layers yeah and also we don't for me in my placement last year i was loving working with junior high and high school students but some of the younger elementary school students i had a really hard time in those sessions because they're not going to say like oh i'm feeling this way <laughs> yeah but i'm supposed to be picking up on things like i could have i i really need to work in that area because we just don't know how to listen when it's not necessarily like straightforward words yeah oh yeah yeah it seems like i mean we're, we're all going through different traumas right like in some mm -hmm. form or another i think even like the most stable household is having its own yeah. whatever that is there's some weirdness that's impacting you because we are i mean yeah we're sort of we are these like we are whatever was put into us as a younger age and built Absolutely. up that. so like, yeah that's that's really interesting I, I wonder about that too with children because then you have these adults 
like just like a bunch of like adults who didn't like have those because i don't think i had those conversations growing up but like i think a lot of people don't have those like like you said just even like looking at like oh my parents act this way because this is how their parents had like that that was a realization Mm -hmm. i had like three years ago of beginning to understand like my parents are like this towards me because they were yes. like this towards them and that was like as a and that was i think in some way because of i think improv another benefit at least with improv with me is it's it's sort of help it just kind of maybe because of the vulnerability we express on stage of like kind of looking at your own self at least this has yes. been my response of like looking in and being like oh damn okay cool yes. this is what i'm about and then forcing me to look at some of my family stuff but it's like that happened in my mid 20s or late 20s and this mm-hmm. child is doing this at the age of 13 that's phenomenal yeah i mean you see it both ways when i was teaching elementary school i remember and i had to kind of correct the way i thought about this but there would be children doing things or responding in ways that i'm like oh this is the type of adult that like everyone this sounds horrible but like everyone hates or doesn't want to be around or it's like does these unhealthy things and i was seeing like oh this is how early it starts because i could see what's going on in the family system and and it was just you know this child had learned to respond to certain things in certain ways and it was just like oh you have to really get in there so early like something small or that early can really impact yeah because i remember thinking not like oh she's going to become someone that people don't like i want to be around but i'm like oh what a lonely life this is gonna what a life where this child kind of sees the world in a specific way yeah that's gonna bring her distress it was just yeah it was a i think that's why i transitioned from teaching to social work because i did i wasn't really in love with like the core content or like teaching math and english and reading i was i wanted to get at those social emotional things going on yeah but yeah i think is there any push to get more social workers into schools? Because like I went to, I went. To, I'm from the CPS, the Chicago Public School okay. System, and like uh, we had a nurse sometimes at our school, like two two days of the week. I don't ever know. I never really thought like I don't. I never seeked out a social worker. So I don't know if yeah. we had it. My guess is that we were probably didn't have enough as to what we needed. Like we had counselors, but I never saw my counselor, so no one was checking mm-hmm. up with me. Luckily, I had a pretty strong support system, and my parents were on my butt constantly about school but Mm -hmm. like i feel like many kids could get lost in the way our classes were like 30 kids there's one teacher yeah not not, there's no chance like we're talking about trying to like assess everyone's education level in our workshops of like 12 people it's like these are 30 children i'm at least i'm dealing with like med students who Mm -hmm. at least kind of are they're adults and think that they need to pay attention or they clearly know how to show up in a classroom in a way that will bring them success or else they wouldn't have gotten that yeah at least to some degree but then these are now 30 children or young people Mm -hmm. and like you can hide away in the back there's no hiding in my workshops really and it's like how do you even begin to like catch these little things that are probably signs but you're trying to teach and also like care for these kids it seems like a lot that is that's a tough question i think there's like kind of um a joke that at least among a lot of social work students like oh don't become school social worker because you'll never actually get to do social work Mm. because what happens at least within a lot of cps schools and the placement i was at last year we were part of an a a community organization that the school then brought us in to do therapy in the school because they didn't have enough support but what happens is social workers will be assigned to multiple schools. Yeah. So now you're going in, you know, maybe you only have three days, two days a week at one school, 
a whole caseload of like immediate crises. So you're not even really engaging in a lot of therapeutic work. Yeah. I'm not saying all school social workers don't do that, but in a lot of these under-resourced schools, yeah. you don't even, it's just impossible seeing the, the overloaded cases and expectations of the school counselor and social worker at the school last year. It was, it was just insane. Yeah. There's just not enough. And then exactly what you're saying, the teachers, I had a lot of frustration with the teachers and staff at this particular school. And then we had this brilliant, brilliant, brilliant social worker and therapist who teaches at, at uh, my university, but also would do clinical supervision for other social workers. Cool. Um, and she came in to observe a, a trauma workshop at the school. And um, she had heard the social workers' frustrations about the, the teachers and staff there. And then afterwards, she was like, okay, I understand that on the surface, your job is to work with children who may be experiencing trauma. But she's like, CPS is a traumatized system. All those teachers are also experiencing trauma. Oh. Like, their experience in the classroom, even if they are, like, they have a lot of other issues to sort out, like... Even if you're the best teacher walking in, you're trying to work within a traumatized. So she just got us to like zoom out even further. Yeah. But yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wow. I guess. Okay. So it's really close to nine. So I want to wrap up. So sure. you're not late for your show. Yeah, it's okay. I've just, you've caused me to think about so many things already. Oh. Um, cool. Not just within social work, but the idea of like how we might not be able to walk in any situation with no expectations or biases or anything yeah. like that. But how do we at least become aware of those and manage them? And I think queer theory asks us asks us to do that and to like see the structures and the systems and the and those things that influence our thinking that we're not really aware of all the time. Yeah. But I guess I would want to know for you as you do these workshops, is there something that you've learned as you've done more, something you're really excited about? Like this doesn't have to be related to therapy or social work. Yeah. But I think it's just helpful to think about how other people are applying improv. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a, in a grand sense, like improv has really given me like a, a purpose in my career. Mm. Um, like I, over the last few years, I've been doing this medical improv stuff, like really trying to mold it back into my professional life, like for mm -hmm. the longest time. So I've been doing improv for like five years. And so for the first like three and a half I was a pharmacist doing my pharmacy work and I was an improviser performing. And there were two separate worlds yes. that were disparate from each other. And I didn't, at least I didn't, I wasn't cognizant of the connection. Um, and then as I've been connecting the two and trying to blend them more and more and learning new opportunities, I've come to realize that like I can combine these worlds. And so that's where medical improv is sort of this, like at least currently is like the beautiful culmination and so i think it's just the first step in a number of other connections that i'll continue to make is that imp humor for hope is another that yes. so that's another connection of combining these worlds of therapy like uh health and humor and combining all those things so on a, on a large scale it's been a very professionally like satisfying like improv already makes me feel better than anything in the world like yes. it puts me in a, in a especially when things go well like it in a in this like magical headspace that I don't even know how to describe in it's honestly kind of made me relook at like the feeling that like you drink and you dance and it's fun and mm -hmm. then I and then I get I come off of like a high from a show and I'm like holy crap there is nothing like I, I think that I don't know if I've ever really been in love but I think that this is like that level of like I love that that's what it, so like on that level it's just like really really super satisfying so I like that um being able to sh for doing the workshops like being able to share it with students and being able to show them that like 
I don't know. I'm super passionate about this, and it really makes me feel great. And like, mm-hmm. if this in any way can fit into your life, like, and you find a benefit to that, like, I think that that's amazing. So being able to share this work with students has been awesome because I get to see students have their own discoveries and just be let loose and like even hearing just students say like i was really nervous at the beginning and you really Mm -hmm. made me feel comfortable and you made me think about like um how to sort of move forward in my career i try to highlight at the end like all i want you to take away from this is a a, a reappreciation of the importance of communication just Mm -hmm. think about this as you move forward how can i become a better communicator if that's all you get then i think that it's a success or just even like understanding that communication is complicated and you can't just come into a room and say whatever and expect people to know um, so that being able to share that stuff is really awesome. Um, that struggle is the same with with social work. You might only interact with a client once. Maybe you're uh, doing some kind of case management. Maybe yeah. You know, sometimes. You in my program, certain students only got a certain amount of sessions, so you don't know what uh, how big the impact is. Yeah. You hope something comes from it, but yeah, you you just have to kind of like give it your all and and hope that you know what they they that you can offer something that they can then adapt for themselves and bring with them and even if it's just like cool that was a fun friday afternoon and on with the rest of my life i'm like that's awesome like i'd love to help people just escape from a little bit if i can because it and it also like it really really feels good to do that sort of stuff like doing improv feels great doing these workshops feels awesome it's so scary and terrifying and like i love that stuff it makes me feel really really good and it's the most empowering liberating and humbling thing yeah in in the world and that's i am probably as far down the introvert spectrum as you can get Mm. um and i used to stutter so bad in like class presentations that even in college in my undergrad years a teacher was like you know what Uh, please just sit down like it's a it's okay. Like oh, wow. after trying to restart, I was stuttering so badly just to read off like the PowerPoint I'd created. Yeah. And now looking back only because of improv, like it's night and day. But this idea that, you know, you go out, you create a show with this team and then you throw it away. It, you never create the same show again. Yeah. You never, you know, you might never get the same suggestion again. You create something either horrible or brilliant and beautiful, and then you immediately throw it away. Yeah. It's so humbling and it's so, but so empowering at the same time. I've left like like the a few weeks ago. We had a rehearsal where I was tearing because I was laughing so much, and I was sitting in the car, and I was gonna drive up like a teammate home, and I was like, I don't know what like. If I wasn't doing this, like I don't know what the hell I'd be doing. I think I'd be mm-hmm. I'd be a very unrealized version of myself because I've Ooh, yeah. begun to explore the last five years a person of a person a part of me that I did not know existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and like to be able to talk to students about that and just like share that this there's there's more of you than like you. I don't like to be defined as just a pharmacist because I, mm-hmm. I know that I am more than that. So it's like I'm sure people who are doctors and other professions, unless. Like, unless you want to be defined by that, it's like, we are more than that, man. We are a lot of different things. And so, like, why wouldn't you want to be that if you can? Like, yes. And that's the thing. When you a client walks in, there's so much more than whatever issue they're walking in the room to try and, you know, that's resolve. That's Yeah. And that's exact, like, that spirit. I don't know. That's just so, that's the spirit of it all. I love that. Yeah. It's funny because, well, I don't know if this is your experience as well or, or how you feel, but... I loved comedy. I loved stand-up specifically. That's why I started improv because I, I was like, there's no way I can do stand-up. And then since then, I've done some stand-up. But 
I just started improv and thought maybe the goal would be to do comedy more seriously and then realized that that is an art I love, but the art that I feel like I truly love is like how, like translating that to other areas. So it's weird for that to be your art. Yeah. Or it's hard to figure out like, okay, what do you do with that? Either that like passion and that desire or that like artistic inclination. Yeah. But I I mean, you have that. Sort of. I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what role it plays. I just knew, like, yeah. so, like, for me, like, the moment I did improv, I knew that I wanted it to be a part of my life. And this yes. was before I ever even considered um, doing this sort of teaching stuff. It was just like, uh, I'm, I guess I'll just, I'm going to be doing shows until I die, is what how I thought of it. And mm-hmm. I still plan on doing that. I still plan, in some form or another, doing some kind of performancey stuff. But it was like, I knew from the moment I stepped in, this was going to be a part of my life. And so that thought was just in my head forever. And it's just, like, um, slowly formed and shaped into this thing. And I wanted to keep transforming and turning and like helping me like yeah just help me continue through my career and my life and like and all that stuff it's just it's really given a lot more purpose than uh i don't know if i'd be purposeless without improv but i feel like uh i don't know i'd rather i'm glad i'm not living in that dimension that yeah <laughs> that reality where improv isn't there i don't know what i would have had maybe i would have had I don't know, seven children or something by now. <laughs> Maybe that's the alternate reality. I can actually very clearly see you with seven children. I was holding a baby a few days ago, or yesterday, and it was phenomenal. She puked on me, and I did not care. Wow. She, she was such a sweet little baby. Well, maybe you'll have both. <laughs> maybe one day. That's that's the, that's the next time. Yeah, um, yeah. But no, I just I think improv is great. I try to tell people like I don't want to force improv onto everybody, but I do. Like you said, I think everyone should try improv to feel that fear and that vulnerability because mm-hmm. it is at least for me was horrifying. Oh, it's still so. I took about a year off. I had some health issues and I just was not able to. Yeah, and I started back at. The comedy club we're both a part of. Yeah. I um, had the first rehearsal uh, last week after a year of not doing any scenes. Wow. And um, the first thing they had me do was a gauntlet. Love which that. for yeah. those listening, it's when, so if you're the new person, you, you're you not allowed to ever leave the stage. It's new people coming on to do a scene, 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 scene. And then the first half, they're initiating the scene. Second half, you're initiating the scenes. It was horrifying. Yeah. And afterwards, like the second half of it, I had this back of the thought type thing go through my mind. I'm like, yeah, like this is the feel. Like, yeah. feel it. Yeah. That's, it I beautiful. love it. Yeah. You go from wanting to puke to wanting to just like keep going. It's great. Well, thank you so much for sitting down to talk about this. This just makes me want to talk to you for a thousand more hours. Oh, yeah. Think about these things. I'm going to look into all the organizations you mentioned, especially the train the trainer type stuff. Oh, yeah. I can send you the link. That, that would too. be wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sharon. Cool. Thanks. Thank you.